This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Uh, Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Chapter 14. We're continuing our series on the Gospel of Mark. We're coming to the end. And we're, this morning... In, in chapter 14, looking at Jesus' trial and the response of His disciples. This is God's Word. It's a gift to us. So grateful we're able to gather together, grateful that we're able to live stream and have you connected that way. And we turn our attention now as a congregation to this most important moment of our week. Mark chapter 14, we'll begin reading in verse 51 and read down through the end of the chapter. Verse 50 says, all his disciples had left him and fled. And then verse 51, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. They led Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed them at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put Him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against Him, but their testimony didn't agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against Him, saying, we heard Him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony didn't agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came 
And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of who you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. It's a timely encouragement. It's a timely warning to remain faithful as a disciple and to be a faithful witness in these days for Jesus Christ. Romans 8.32 is a well-known verse. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? John Piper says this may be the most important sentence in all the Bible. My historical hero John Flavel said this about Romans 8.32. Surely if God would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery. It can never be imagined that ever he should, after this, deny or withhold from his people, for whose sake all this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. Mark 14 tells us about Jesus not being spared one stroke, one tear for our benefit. All Scripture is profitable and beneficial because of what we're reading about today. There's blessing here. The Lord didn't spare His own Son. He suffered. His followers had fled. His trial was illegal. He was lied about and falsely accused. He was condemned as if he deserved death. He was spit on. He's struck in the face while blindfolded. He's mocked. He's received by the guards with blows. His main disciple, the chief disciple, denies he knows him three times after pledging he'd be loyal till death. In light of all of this, how will the Lord not give us everything? It was all for, for us. Over a hundred years ago in 1906, a young black American named Ed Johnson was murdered by a mob in his hometown of Chattanooga. He'd been sentenced to death for the rape of a white woman, 
But the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court had issued a stay of execution because his case was under appeal. His conviction was in doubt. The victim repeatedly refused to swear that he was the man who had attacked her. But a mob broke into the jail where he was being held and hung him on the Wall Street Bridge in downtown Chattanooga. According to the Ed Johnson Project, the ongoing Ed Johnson Project, which is working for remembrance, for reconciliation, and for unity, the story of Ed Johnson and his attorneys changed the course of justice in America forever with a series of historic precedents and legal firsts. Ed Johnson was the first African-American awarded a stay of execution by the U.S. Supreme Court. His local Chattanooga attorney was one of the first African-American lawyers to appear before the Supreme Court. And for the first time, the Supreme Court got involved in a state criminal case. It halted the execution. Local Chattanoogans ignored the stay and, and they hung Mr. Johnson. But the Supreme Court, the country, and President Theodore Roosevelt were not happy. And they swiftly and with outrage investigated this event and they held their first and only criminal trial before the Supreme Court to find them guilty. Theodore Roosevelt made it his goal to arrest the members of this mob. The sheriff was arrested. He sent his own secret servicemen there to investigate it. Ninety-four years after his murder, the Hamilton County criminal judge overturned Johnson's conviction after hearing arguments, and it was clear he hadn't received a fair trial. Now, I tell you that story because an important part of that story is that while in jail, Ed Johnson became a Christian. The Lord saved him. He was a witness for Jesus Christ. He confessed. Christ was his Lord and Savior, and he was baptized. And like Jesus, he forgave the very people that killed him and executed him. On his, la on his tombstone in Chattanooga are his final words, God bless you all. I am an innocent man. And also, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord because they'll be raised with him. And Ed Johnson is a powerful witness for Jesus Christ. And though he's been dead these many years, thank you, Mr. Johnson, for your faithful witness. We want to follow your example. That's what this text is about today. It is a great day. We live in a great day to tell people, to witness to people about Jesus Christ. He suffered injustice. He was an innocent man. He was wrongfully executed. This was part of his suffering, and it was for us. And we have a message to proclaim. Our text is the third time in chapter 14 alone that Mark is doing his sandwich thing. So hopefully you don't need it explained. So he will tell two similar things and put his main point in the middle. And that's what he's doing here. And his main point is witnessing, faithful witnessing. 
In nine verses, the word witness occurs seven times. And even when it's absent, the theme of witnessing is there. Disciples are called to give a true testimony to Jesus. That's the point of our text. And we're going to look at closely at the different witnesses in Mark 14, beginning with, number one, the false witnesses. The false witnesses. So between Peter's entrance into the courtyard and his denial at the end, Mark tells the story of the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Following his arrest, he's immediately taken to this group. And this is, this is the group that rules the Jewish nation in conjunction with the Romans. The trial doesn't take place, though, where it's supposed to, where they normally would have met. They're meeting at the high priest's house. There's no evidence that the Sanhedrin ever formally met there. It doesn't appear to be an official gathering. It feels more like a mob. Verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. He's accused before the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the whole Sanhedrin, the whole council. What Mark describes, though, is a violation of Jewish law in a number of ways. Nearly every detail of this trial violates the law. The trial was supposed to begin with the defense, followed by then the accusations against the accused. If, if the accused is found guilty, they're supposed to meet the next day, give a cooling off period and have time to make sure justice was served. Witnesses were warned about rumors and slander and hearsay. The charge of blasphemy couldn't be sustained unless the accused cursed God's name itself. So Mark's account of the trial of Jesus makes it clear they violated the law because they wanted to kill Him. They're just expediting it. They're going around the law. It's the worst case of injustice in history. He is being executed by a bloodthirsty mob that hated him. As soon as he appears before them, he's convicted. The evidence is pressed against him. All the formalities of the law are ignored. And they do what they must to make sure he's killed. They condemned and they killed an innocent man. So I, I, as I was thinking about this and just thinking about the subject of injustice, I was trying to think, you know, have I ever experienced injustice? Have I ever been wronged? Certainly not like this, but have you ever experienced injustice, falsely accused? I, the only thing I could think of was going through the West Virginia toll booth on the turnpike. It's $2.00. And, and I was there, and I was headed up to West Virginia, and, and I put my two bucks in, 
and the, the red light's supposed to turn green so you can go through, it didn't turn green. It stayed red. So I thought, well, it's only two bucks. I'll make a contribution to West Virginia, try again, put the two bucks in, it stays red. So I'm like, that's my limit. I just drive through the red light. A month later, I see this charge on my credit card. And I call the credit card company to find out the West Virginia Highway Department has charged me $10 for going through the red light. It was unjust. <laughs> you know how it makes you feel? I mean, I was angry. I wasn't so angry that I was going to spend half my life to get 10 bucks back. So I just made a donation. For most of us, this is the kind of injustice we suffer. We never, it never gets beyond that. We may know somebody, though. You may know somebody that has really been harmed personally. It's a terrible thing. And as God's people, it should really bother us because He is the righteous judge. God hates injustice. He hates injustice. And as God's people, we love justice. We want there to be justice. In His world, there should be justice. Should be righteous justice. The guilty should be convicted and the innocent should go free. And that's the way we want it. Verse 55 says the chief priests and the whole council, all they're doing is seeking evidence to condemn him. And they can't find any, so they have to resort to false witnesses. And there are many false witnesses, and they're determined to get him condemned. They slandered him. They slandered him. They said things that weren't true. That put him in a bad light. They would say things like, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But now it's more serious. And this, this is all part of him making himself nothing for us. For believers. To, to come and live among us, his reputation, his good name, which the Bible teaches is a gift, was stained again and again. Rumors, slander. They were unrelenting. He was attacked. The good name of the greatest man that ever lived was ruined in Jerusalem. And the crowds that had hailed him as king crucified him as a criminal. Now Jeff read from Isaiah today, and we joined with him. Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. And what you're reading is the fulfillment of these prophecies. Hundreds of years before this, Isaiah prophesied about these moments. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Isaiah 53, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people. All this is happening for God's people. 
And so we need to understand as we read this text, behind every false witness, behind every lie, there is the glory of Jesus Christ. We see His glory as He endures all this, all His suffering. He was hated for us. He was slandered even as He is displaying the greatest love ever seen on earth. He was truth. And they hated Him because He was truth. He was light. They hated Him because of their darkness. Verse 56, many bore false witness against Him, but their testimony didn't agree. Again in verse 59, their, their testimony didn't agree even when they brought it up about what he said about the temple. It didn't agree. So even the liars could not get their story straight. They, they aren't successful because they contradict each other. And this just reminds us, this is a statement, God is in control of the trial of Jesus Christ. Even liars can't agree. Even as a captive in the whole system stacked against him, he is in control. He cannot be discredited. He was an innocent man. Verse 58, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. It's the only charge against him that Mark records. It's a serious charge. The temple symbolized the essence and hopes of Judaism. It's the center of their worship. It's the center of the Sanhedrin's power. They, the Jewish people, expected the temple and, and Jerusalem to be glorious, as glorious as the Messiah. No one thought the temple would be replaced. But note that Jesus never said He was going to destroy the temple. Only John records what He actually said, which was, in a response to a request for a sign, he said this, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He was talking about his resurrected body. Destroy this body. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. His attitude towards the temple, the main place of Jewish worship though, was not at all what they wanted. It wasn't what they thought it should be. And it's his attitude that, this attitude that got him killed. It got Stephen, the first Christian martyr, killed. They claimed that he spoke against the temple. It was a serious charge. You remember when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, he said he did it for the sake of prayer for all the nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. We, we learn in Mark that Jesus is replacing the temple as the place where you meet God. The focus is shifting. No longer is it going to be a building. No longer is it going to be one nation. It's going to be Jesus, He is the true temple. Through Him, we have access to God. The, the focus is on fellowship with God in Christ. He changes worship. 
This, this is the conflict that he's having with the Jewish leaders. He said about himself, something greater than the temple is here. The hour is coming. It's now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He, he fulfills everything the temple stood for. He is the place where believers meet God. These false witnesses are trying to have Him condemned. And they can't agree. What gets Him killed is that He has come to change the relationship that God's people have with His Father. The Lord saved me when I was 17 years old, so I think about the relay retreat. I know that the, the teenagers and their families just got back, and the reports are in that they had a wonderful time, both being together, but also experienced God's grace. And, and I can just relate to this gift of joy at, at that age, and even at this age. Believe it or not, when you're old, you can still have joy in Christ. But I, I met the risen Christ and experienced fellowship with God when I was 17. And this is what Jesus is communicating to these leaders. I am changing worship. The new covenant means all of God's people have access to Him. All of God's people can go, as it were, we sang about this today, behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And it threatened them. I was, I was witnessing to a football coach at UT, was my neighbor a few years ago, and I'd been reaching out to him for a while and finally ended up having lunch with him. And I spent an hour trying to talk to him about Jesus Christ and witnessing to him and trying to share with him what the Lord had done in my life and who He was and tell Him about the Gospel. And He had grown up in church and seemed to be saying all was good with Him and God. And, and so I started to pay the bill for our lunch thinking that I was getting nowhere. And then He said to me, now, what's this stuff about knowing God? Right as I was leaving, What's this, stuff, what's this stuff about knowing God? You keep talking about knowing God. What do you mean by that? And you know, I'm dropping my credit card and my pen and trying to get my act together and tell him, well, that's the great treasure of the kingdom. Fellowship with God in Christ. It isn't just in one building. It isn't a building. True worship is to have the risen Christ. Did you know today that you can know God? Did you know that? Did you come today? Are you watching via live stream? Do you know that you can know God because of Christ? That's the message. That's what we want to 
witness to. Jesus has been slandered throughout history. And He will always be slandered. And He is being slandered today. And there are false witnesses. And He is calling us to be true witnesses to tell people you can know God through Christ. The second kind of witness is the faithful witness. The next witness we learn about and the central point is found in the center of the sandwich in verses 60 and 62. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. He is the faithful witness. I am. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of the blessed, the Son of God. He's the faithful witness. He confesses before the high priest under pressure, knowing what this will cost him. He's God's Son. That's what damned him. That's the evidence they needed to execute him. And Mark is emphasizing this. He's highlighting this. He's underlining this. He wants you to see. You're under pressure. You're standing before the chief priests. You're standing before people that have authority to make your life miserable. And you're asked, who is he? He's the Son of God. Notice that the high priest asked him, have you no answer to make? And Jesus is silent amidst all these false accusations. Why was he silent? For one thing, sometimes when you're being accused, being silent is strategic. Because if you say anything, it's just going to be used against you. But there, there's more to it than that. This is a fulfillment again of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's the suffering servant. Verse 61, he remained silent. He made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Jesus only breaks his silence at that point. And it's not a question. In the original language here, it's a statement. So the chief priest actually says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And again, it's, it's like God is in control. He has his main accuser confessing. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. All through the gospel, we've known, if you're a reader of Mark's gospel, he's, he's the Son of God. The first verse says this is the good news about the Son of God. Why was he silent? Remember, he would just don't tell people. He just kept things silent. Why does he wait till this point? Because you can't understand who he is until he suffers. This is when the glory becomes clear. Until he suffers. He needed to suffer before he could feel, fully reveal who he is. Only in light of his suffering can Jesus make his identity as God's Son known. 
I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. It's a powerful moment in the Gospel of Mark. And then he connects this with this confession, I'm also the Son of Man. They knew who the Son of Man was in Daniel and in Psalms. You read about the Son of Man. The Son of Man in the Old Testament, He's a powerful, divine person. He is God. <laughs> and you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's a confession. I am God. Got him killed. The high priest, verse 63, he'd, he'd heard everything he needs. He tore his garments. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. They started spitting on him, covered his faith and struck him, saying prophesy, mocking him. And the guards received him with blows. They would pass him from one to another. They are upset. This was clearly blasphemy. In the ears of the high priest. And it's a testimony to the fact that Jesus believed he was divine. The fact that he was charged with blasphemy tells us what Jesus thought about himself. He, what he said got him killed because of the charge of blasphemy. That was the punishment. And he did it all for us. Finally, the final witness is the witness who failed. The witness who failed. One commentator says, while Jesus was undergoing a formal trial above up in the, above in the house, above the courtyard, a trial of different sorts was taking place below. That's the kind of trial you and I will go through. Just the everyday trial around our friends. Well, the whole scene is indelibly fixed in the consciousness of the Western world, one commentator said. It needs to be fixed in our mind because it's a warning. It's, it's an encouragement and a warning that our faith is being tested. In verse 50, they all left Him and fled. They all drank the cup with Him in verse 23. They all pledged to die with Him in verse 31. And now they've all deserted Him. The failure of Judas turns into failure of everybody. Everybody fails. Verse 51, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. One, man, one commentator says it's the first recorded streaker in history. Some, some people have suggested the young man was Mark. But more likely... Mark has left this young man unidentified intentionally because he represents everyone that was running in desperation. They were abandoning Jesus. 
Amos prophesied in Amos chapter 2, He who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Paul says in Romans 3, There's no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. The chief apostle, verse 54, Peter, had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard. It's, it's a hint. He follows at a distance. He's going to fail. He sits with the guards. He warms himself by the fire. He mingles in the courtyard with the very men that are going to arrest Jesus and soon beat Him and mock Him. Sits around the fire with Him. He's there. He's observing. But He's safe. So we pause. We're supposed to pause. Mark wants us to pause. Are we safe? Peter's discipleship at that point isn't costing him personally. Verse 66, Peter was below in the courtyard and then this servant girl shows up in God's providence. Seeing Peter, you know, she starts out, you were with this man, Jesus. He denies it. I neither know nor understand what you mean. The fire is illuminating his face and she can see him. Mark says several times. She can see him. He's staying back. He's, he's wanting to stay out of the light. He's wanting not to be the center of attention. But this girl just keeps seeing him. And he's falling all over himself to prove, I don't know Jesus. I don't know who he is. I don't know him in theory. I don't relate to him. I don't... I'm not with it. Warning. He goes out to the gateway, which puts him even further away from Jesus. But then the girl is even more emphatic. This man is one of them. And then she gets bystanders involved. Verse 70, certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. Probably his accent gave him away. And, and then he goes nuclear. He began to invoke a curse, verse 71, on himself. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And then the, the rooster crowed a second time. And he remembered Jesus had said, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And he was devastated. He broke down and he wept. He gave it his all to convince everyone, I am not a follower of Jesus. I do not know this man, the chief apostle. No amount of protesting can keep the rooster from crowing. And he realized what he'd done. He never faced a formal trial. He isn't questioned directly about his faith, but he is just in an everyday life. And even after being warned by Jesus, saying he would never fall away, he does. This is a warning. Faithfulness to Christ, faithful witness for Jesus Christ is easily betrayed. 
Mark was writing to the church at Rome in the first century. And they were increasingly experiencing pressure and persecution. And he wants them to understand. Be a faithful witness. Don't compromise. Don't fall away. Don't be surprised when people fall away. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have to fight. We are in a lengthy trial, aren't we? It's the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? 2020, what a year. And it's so kind of the Lord to give us His Word and let us, let us hear this. Be faithful. Persevere. Stay awake. Fight for joy in Christ. Don't give up. That's what this Word is for, for you. Stay with Him. Don't compromise. Don't be afraid. Don't flee. Don't quit. Be the faithful witness. He is the Son of God. He did save me. And I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to fall away. By the grace of God, it's a gift. The steadfastness of Christ is a gift. Yes, we have a responsibility. We fight. We fight the good fight of faith, but it's a gift from Him. And He gives us His Word this morning to warn us and to say, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? He will give you steadfastness and your courage will amaze you. Right when you need it the most, you will be courageous. I received a text from a member of our church this week, just the effect of meeting with her community group. And she wrote a little note to her community group leader and sent it to me and just wanted me to see it. I needed to tell you how much I appreciate you leading the community group. I just want to shout out to you community group leaders. Thank you. She says, you put so much time into your reading. We get to share all the knowledge and blessings of that. Your great examples. Tells him he has a great sense of humor. I don't agree with that, but we all get to laugh together. She's just easy to make laugh. Your love for everyone is obvious. It, it's, a, it's a couple leading this who, who, who are suffering, and it's not lost on this member of their community group. The Lord will help us, won't He? The Lord will encourage us. Often through the church, often through people like these community group leaders. But He will give us the steadfastness of Christ. The good news is Peter was rescued. He was not beyond the grace of God, was he? You know, Peter died for his faith. Peter was crucified for his faith. He recovered. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This man that we read about, this failure, who didn't remain steadfast and witness for Christ, was redeemed by the grace of God. Let's entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Amen. Father, I do pray for this church.
I pray during this trial that we will not fall away and that we will not quit. And Lord, we are willing, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we cry out to you today for the steadfastness of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful witnesses. I pray this church would be filled with individuals who will remain steadfast in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Let us be lights. Let us be like a city set on a hill that's a light to the world around us saying Jesus Christ is the Son of God risen from the dead. Lord, I pray for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.